Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. Alina, who's petrified because she's got to pronounce some Indian names. Who's on with us today? We have with us Satvinda Singh Juss, who's an author and law professor at King's College, London. But his most recent publication is The Execution of... Bhagat Singh. You <laughs> just say it exactly like it's written down. Bhagat Singh. Bhagat Singh, um, which was published very recently. We're going to talk about Bhagat Singh and, uh, and um, his execution today. So welcome, Satvinder. Thank you. I love your mental block on Indian things that you just look at them and they terrify you. And out of all of them, Indian stuff, you just read it exactly like it's written down and ignore the H's. Mm. do you know what considering i speak one of probably one of the difficult languages in the world um i don't know why i have a mental block for other languages it's (laughs) It's just your utter terror just do what english people and pronounce do and pronounce it all really badly just own it but anyway let's talk about bagat singh this can be a really fascinating story can you set the scene for us please sapvinda and tell us what was the political situation in india in the late 1920s Well, particularly uh, Fabril, uh, in the sense that although at one level you have the Government of India Act 1919 coming in at that time, designed to um, uh, work its way to gradual independence for the Indian people, it was also a time when the First World War had ended in 1918. And that had led to a realization amongst many colonized people that British armies were vulnerable, that they had met with defeat and that uh, all was not well, Uh, and that being so, uh, there was a clamor for independence. Uh, A second reason why this clamor actually uh, enhanced itself was the Russian Revolution, 1917, a a very complete revolution that led to a complete overhaul of the existing uh, system. And it was something that uh, across the uh, colonized world, uh, peoples wanted to, to emulate. And the British were were perfectly uh, cognizant of that. Uh, They were aware of that. They were aware of the dangers of that. And certainly all the independence movements at the time uh, tended to to emulate uh, socialism in in that sense. Um, So that was the second reason. And the third reason was this, that the the First World War having ended, the British government, uh, against uh, advice, decided to actually bring into effect the Anarchical and Revolutionary Crimes Act, which was a heavy-handed, oppressive piece of legislation that suspended habeas corpus for anyone who was uh, being naughty, and at the t- same time removed the right to, to trial by jury. Um, and that, again, led to a lot of opposition uh, in, in India. Now, having said all of that, uh, here's the, the real uh, gold nugget. As I was carrying out my research in Lahore, uh, a place that had not been frequented, but which rumor had it contained a treasure trove of uh, documentation on this very question, on the question of how was independence won? Because the popular narrative is that it was won through a peaceful non-cooperation movement of uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who turned the other cheek, who was non-revolutionary, whose methods were then emulated throughout the ages by people like Nelson Mandela, and the others and so on. But there was always a parallel tradition of revolutionary activity, of of fighting off the invader through revolutionary means, because that was the only way you could do it. And and this idea had completely become eclipsed 
because after the, the grant of independence in 1947, of course, we all know that it was Gandhi and Nehru and the Congress party that took over. So in a sense, there was a deliberate silencing of this other tradition. Now, as I was carrying out this research um, in Lahore, I stumbled upon a document which was written in the immediate aftermath of the Amritsar massacre, the Jallianwala Bagh massacre, where what happens is the massacre happens in April 1917. In May the next month, the Lieutenant Governor of the Punjab writes to all the commissioners in Jalandhar, Ambala, the Fulkian states, and to Lahore, asking for a report from them. And two things come out of that report. The first is this, so this has never been mentioned before. The first thing is this, that the report from Lahore says that actually uh, we feel that the East is the East and the West is the West, and that we will never be welcomed in this country, and that the time may well have come for us to leave, because at the end of the day, we have to see these people as their enemies. But most importantly, despite the fact that 50 years have gone by since the 1857 revolt and direct rule had been imposed contrary to the uh, East India Company's uh, rule there, uh, what these people were saying was, uh, from Lahore, that nothing has changed since 1857, that the country remains the same, and that we are very much at siege, and we really have to think about what to do. That was the first thing that had not been mentioned before. I mean, this is the 1919 report. The second thing is this, that uh, um, there was a concern that the Hindus and Muslims, and after all, it's, it's, it's their alleged uh, dislike of each other that leads to the formation of two states of Pakistan and India, that they were coming together. And, and only in uh, uh, 2017, sorry, 1917, uh, in February, had the Congress party set up its own committee there in Amritsar to bring Hindus and Muslims together. And a couple of months later, Dr. Uh, Kichalu, um, the Muslim fellow, uh, had attempted to bring uh, uh, the two communities together. And there was a, a particular festival, the Ram Nauri festival, when it was a Hindu festival. But what was happening was that the Muslims were giving water through their hands, in their hands, to Hindus who were drinking from their hands. So the communities were coming together. And that was something that was given the uh, British Raj a lot of concern, that how are we going to deal with the situation when what they're doing is coming together and blaming us for all their all their woes. So that was the background. I'm so fascinated and just enthralled by what you're saying right now. Every time we do an Indian podcast, Alina's just like, because this is a world you just don't, it's never been on your radar, isn't it? No, I, and I just, to be honest, at the moment I want to sack off everything else. I want you just to carry on talking about this whole situation. <laughs> time. Um, I just, my mind is blown right now. Yeah, it's just, it, the, the big thing after the First World War is the idea that all of these countries like uh, Indi- India is the big one, but countries like uh, Canada and Australia have poured all of their young men and all of their manpower into Britain and World War One. And you can't just expect the status quo to resume afterwards. You've let them bleed and die for you and they're going to want something in return. And so the white dominions and India actually they start getting a say in how the war progresses from about 1917 they have an imperial congress and stuff but because India is the one that doesn't have self-governance 
after World War One. Um, Australia and Canada and New Zealand already have it before World War One and South Africa. So India wants it. They want what's due to them, which is and it's just a mess, isn't it? Too right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I does it fascinatingly. They're they're debating this at Eton College, the boys, as early as 1915. Should India be given her independence as a thank you for what happens in World War One when this is over? Um, so it's really interesting. But who was specifically? Because we could just do the background and take like two hours to chat with you. Let's. Who specifically was Bhagat Singh, and what do we know about him? Yes, uh, Bhagat Singh actually. Uh... Uh, comes from a well-known revolutionary family um, because his uh, father is actually mentioned in James Carr's report. Uh, James Carr is an intelligence officer as someone who has been responsible for seditious literature in the Punjab. Uh, The uncle Ajit Singh, whom he adored, is a person who gives a a, a seditious uh, speech at the 1907 farmers' uh, meeting, when the British government was pretty much as now attempting to modernize farming in the Punjab, uh, the effect of which was to actually disenfranchise the pe- pe- peasantry. Uh, and he gives this fiery speech uh, to say that uh, um, uh, uh, we must uh, refuse revenue to the government if that's what they're going to do. And for his uh, troubles, he is uh, deported from, from the place and spends actually 40 uh, years pretty much the whole of his life, traveling around in the wilderness in Brazil, uh, Latin America, uh, Europe, uh, before eventually turning at the request of Nehru on 15th of uh, August 1947, the day of the grant of independence to India, and then dies on that day. Um, and and Bhagat Singh comes from that, that uh, background. That's the family background. But the other interesting thing is this about him, is, is this that Unlike Gandhi, who actually drew upon Indian mysticism, Bhagat Singh rejected all of that. He borrowed both from Indian revolutionaries and Western revolutionaries. He borrowed from Guru Gobind Singh, uh, the, 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 the Sikh revolutionary leader, from Shivaji, the Maratha's revolutionary leader, but also Lafayette, Garibaldi, and George Washington. And, and it was a mixture of all of these uh, particular traditions uh, that enabled him to act in the way that he did. So, for example, when he, when he, when he throws two bombs uh, in the uh, Central Legislative Assembly in uh, New Delhi, what he's actually doing uh, is these are two smoke bombs uh, on the 8th of April 1929. What he's actually doing is borrowing from uh, uh, Augusta Volant, who in 1893 had thrown two bombs uh, again, from the gallery, in exactly the same way as Bhagat Singh, upon the Chamber of Deputies and injured 20 deputies there. Uh, and he did so because he said he wanted to, quote, make the deaf hear. And Bhagat Singh also wants to make the deaf hear. And he uses exactly that language. And he goes in there and he throws two bombs and then just surrenders himself. He says, here I am. And he's doing that because at the time, two bills are being passed. One is a labor bill designed to quell strikes. But the other is a bill outlawing all Communist Party members. And, and what Bhagat Singh does is to turn up there and to say this is a charade of a parliament. It doesn't represent us. It's all to do with, you know, foreigners and, and stooges and the like and so on. We would not have these bills. And he throws his bombs, surrenders himself and says, what I want is my day in court where I can make a speech 
before the court uh, to explain uh, what I mean by revolution uh, and, and, and where we're coming from, which it does. And so really, this is this, uh, at every juncture, there is a reading of events around the world. He's read Dostoevsky. He's read uh, uh, Lenin, uh, you know, he's read Bertrand Russell, uh, he's read 300 books in jail, 300 books in jail. And that's what really transforms him, is a real intellect. And therefore one can't but uh, think what would have been so different had he lived and taken his rightful place in an Indian parliament, had he not been executed at the age of 23. He died at 23. And so uh, that's, that's really, that is great contribution. The fact that he's able to amalgamate and merge different traditions, not just the Indian one, the Indian one of his family being a set of a bunch of revolutionaries, but also the Western uh, revolutions taking place in the Soviet Union and the changes taking place. I mean, his name is actually talked of and written about by the Communist Party of Great Britain. I, I came across documents in the British Library here in London where the Communist Party is very concerned that the trial should go properly because they say, you know, our comrade will be hanged at the end of it if it does not, you know, observe the, the rules of law uh, and, and, and um, uh, a just trial. So let's look at it in a little bit more detail. Can you talk us through that fateful day, that, well, the day he carries out that an assassination? Yes. Uh, what happens is this, that um, um, the Simon Commission... Uh, comes to uh, India, a seven-member commission, which is designed to um, uh, get the public to agree to the de- delay of the grant of independence. Um, and it's uh, doing its rounds through Delhi and uh, ends up eventually in Lahore. And it is uh, being opposed uh, by a march led by a mentor of um, uh, Bhagat Singh, a man by the name of Lala Lajpat Rai, uh, who he looked up to. And, and they actually engage a peaceful protest uh, against the Simon Commission. Uh, the superintendent of police is a man by the name of uh, Superintendent Scott. And Scott spots Lajpat Rai as this uh, firebrand of a man who's always causing trouble, uh, finds a niche opportune moment and goes for him. He's lati charged and beaten about the head with the, the long bamboo stick. He falls, he's bleeding profusely, and 10 days later he dies. At his funeral that takes place, a woman gets up and says, what's happened to the menfolk of this country? Have they no guts? And uh, have they no drive? Do they not have any sense of shame? Will they not avenge his death? And Bhagat Singh takes it upon himself to avenge that death. And so what they do is, uh, two days before this uh, assassination is to take place, they do a dry run, uh, the three of them, as to what to do. Uh, so there's a lookout, and then there are two other people with Bhagat Singh moving to do it. It was to no avail, because unbeknown to them, and here is the farce, Superintendent Scott was on that day, on the 17th of December 1928, to go out of Lahore town to a place called Kasur in northern India, which is about an hour's drive away. So he wasn't there. But they didn't know that. So off they go in the cool chill of the uh, December afternoon, 4.20pm, and uh, a poor, uh, beleaguered, hapless probationary officer by the name of J.R. Saunders, who is an assistant, um, 
police commissioner in training is coming out at the end of the day from the police station on College Road uh, and pushing his motorcycle along. And as he goes up the pathway, there's a shout from behind him. And the chief constable, uh, Chanan Singh, runs past him and says, Sir, 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 you've forgotten your keys. Uh, and uh, Saunders grasps the keys, puts them in his pockets, goes to the front gates and speeds off. As he does, the lookout says, here's the man. And the lookout actually then eventually turns um, supergrass, and he's the one that spills the beans on everyone. And the first shot is then shot by um, uh, Rajguru, who, who fells uh, the poor officer, and Bhagat Singh then rushes forward and pumps another seven bullets into his body. Uh, groaning police officer dies at that point. The two of them then run across the road into DAV College, and from there they off they go. Uh, they escape. Um, now, now the, the irony is, and again, no one has ever mentioned this, that he would have got comp- clean away with it. Because if you look at the British intelligence reports, and I've seen a number of those, uh, the Viceroy is writing back to London to say, well, we arrested a number of people, but we have to let them go because we've got nothing on them. Uh, they've all been granted bail. Uh, but we're working very hard. We hopefully aim to get them sooner or later. But nothing happens. But very much for the fact that four months down the line, of course, Bhagat Singh decides now to do the assembly bomb. And this is when he does the assembly bomb in Delhi, four months later, with BK Dutt. And the two of them throw these smoke bombs and then they throw over these handwritten uh, uh, pamphlets saying that we want revolution and we want to change and so on. It's at that point, and then he surrenders himself uh, you know, to, to the police, that he's arrested. And when he's arrested, that's when the police put two and two together and come to the conclusion that he was actually involved in the, in the killing. Um, and, and, and before that, let me just say this, the other, you know, that, I mean, the, the thing about these revolutionaries is that they were never really taken terribly seriously, even in India. There was a whiff of romanticism about them. They were always sort of fly-by-night kind of people mm. on the margins. And, and, and Bhagat Singh is always, because of his striking good looks, always compare, uh, compared to, to um, uh, the, the Cuban revolutionary a leader, um, uh, Chavez at the time. And, 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 and what happens is, is this, that interestingly, on the day when he shoots Bhagat Singh, um, 17 December, they think about getting him out of Lahore. And what he does is that at night he cuts his hair because he's a Sikh and his hair has never been cut and he wears a, a turban. And he cuts his hair and he dons a hat and it looks this suave, really, an a, a, a Anglo-Indian uh, uh, or a, you know, gentrified bourgeoisie, uh, highly educated person. Mm-hmm. A lady called uh, Durga Devi, who was one of the very, very few revolutionary women at that time, she comes and she uh, accompanies him as his wife. And the two of them make their way to Lahore railway station. And from there, they take the train a thousand miles away to Calcutta. And that's how they get away. So they actually get away at that time. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, were it not for the fact that he then comes back and does this assembly bomb, he would have gotten completely away with it. Um, and, uh, and that's the great irony of it, you know, that uh, he was. And, and, and the irony is for this reason, there's also this, this tradition that Bhagatim buys into of martyrdom, the idea of noble death. 
And it's something I, I, I often say to my, my English friends a lot of the time that the focus very often in Western culture is always upon the good life. You know, how do I you know, live the great good life when I get all the things I want? But much of the focus in, in Eastern philosophies is about the good death. How do you die a good death? And, and, and the good death is, of course, one where you're at peace with yourself and the like and so on. But there's also an idea of dying for a cause, the, the, die, the idea of being a shaheed. Uh, and and in, in Indian culture, the, one, the two shaheeds we've always known about is Udham Singh, on which Anita Anand has written this book, The Assassin, last year, mm-hmm. and Bhagat Singh. And these are the ones that I grew up, these are the stories that I grew up with, that my grandfather used to tell me about. Uh, in the old days uh, that we had these two shaheeds. And so Dr. Singh actually embraces this idea of dying for a cause. And one of the big burning issues is to what extent is it the case that when he goes through this charade of a trial, one after the other, after the other, is he actually throughout committed to dying saying that, look, I'm going to play the game. I'm going to hoodwink you at every stage, you know, you know, uh, uh, get the better of you at every stage, laugh at you at court and, you know, mock you and so on, because I know I'm going to die and I want to die. And actually there are writings by him where he says, I'm going to gain more in death than I'm ever going to gain by, by living now. Which uh, perhaps and, 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 explains why he's so willing to turn himself in. Yes. Because that, if other, you can't be, you can't be famous unless they make a show of you. And by God, the British are going to make a show of him, aren't they? Because they need to hold him to account and make it brutal and show people what happens when you do this stuff. So there's a trial, isn't there? Yes, that's right. That's right. And yeah. what happens yeah. during the trial? Well, the trial I mean, is, is, is fascinating. Um, and it's fascinating for this reason. There are actually uh, three trials. Uh, the first trial. So when he's arrested after the assembly, bomb. Uh, he is taken before a regular magistrate in Lahore. He's tried and uh, 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 very shortly after that, he is, um, for having uh, done a fake bomb and thrown leaflets, he is uh, subject to a deportation uh, for a, uh, a few months out of the country. Uh, he's taken to prison, uh, uh, to Miyawali jail, and um, uh, uh, on the way, he's uh, in a carriage with BK Dutt, and the two of them think, well, look, we ought to go on a hunger strike, really, uh, because we want to be treated as political prisoners, because we are not common criminals. And, and this is why, to the very, very end, when even when the death penalty was announced, he said, look, don't hang us, shoot us, because we deserve to be shot. As political prisoners, we deserve to be shot. And that's one thing that the British wouldn't give him. Um, so they go on a hunger strike at, at, at that stage. Um, and, and then he's, uh, 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 while still still in, in, in India, in Lahore, they bring in the second trial. And the second trial that takes place then uh, is again before a regular magistrate. Uh, and that's also in Lahore when 230 witnesses are heard by a Indian magistrate uh, and the trial goes for 10 months, during which time they mock the judge. They, they walk in to uh, in the mornings into uh, court and they cry in clubs in Dabad, which means long live the revolution. And they do that every day and then the proceedings begin. And then miraculously, here's the interesting thing. What happens is setting up there in Shimla, the Governor-General on the 1st of uh, July 1930 decides that he is going to stop a running trial, that what he's going to do is he's going to promulgate an ordinance that is because he's a member of the executive, he can, through the prerogative, make his own legislation. 
And under that ordinance, he's going to set up a three-member tribunal, which will sit only for six months, during which time uh, a conclusion must be reached, and from which there will be no right of appeal to a high court. Had the trial remained in the magistrate's court, in a regular court, as in this country, you go on an appeal to the high court. Uh, there would be no right of appeal, uh, and the sentence would then be carried out. And this is something which is, again, not mentioned at all. And here I'm mentioning it for the first time ever. It only comes out because when he is convicted and sentenced to death as a result of this three-member tribunal sitting, hmm. the appeal goes to the Privy Council in London, and there the appeal is fought by a distinguished English lawyer by the name of Dennis Pritt, Winchester-educated, uh, you know, perfectly middle class, but someone who, because he takes up a number of revolutionary cases uh, for Chinese rebels, for Kenyatta in Kenya and so on and so forth, is completely sidelined by the British embassy. And he says, he says, hang on a minute, this isn't a law at all. This is a privilegium. And a privilegium is a Roman law concept where the Roman emperor can simply choose somebody to decide to give a punishment to somebody else. And it's a system that was used in this country, and it was known as an act of attainder or a bill of attainder. And the most famous example of that is, of course, Henry VIII's use of it against his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. Mm -hmm. When he first marries her, he's age 49, she's 19. And he describes her really as the very jewel of womanhood, a woman without a thorn. She's his midlife crisis, isn't she? Within within a year, within a year, he's now he's now described as is uh, now accused of infidelity, but he doesn't want a regular trial because if he has a regular trial, what will happen is that she will give evidence and say this is what you did, this is what you've been up to, this is how you've treated me. So what he does is he does a act of attainder, and he's the first person to give that power to Parliament for Parliament to pass an act of Parliament. And in an act of parliament, I mean, this is completely unheard of nowadays, in an act of parliament, you accuse somebody and then you try them. And what Pritt says is, he says, this is a privilege. It's an act of attainder. And in the 19th century, it was completely abolished in this country because of the abuse. The last person to be tried under this was actually Edward Fitzgerald in 1798 for leading an insurrection against uh, in Ireland and for which he was hanged. And he says, look at this, this ordinance. The ordinance mentions 24 defendants. It doesn't mention what offense they're accused of. It doesn't mention any law. It doesn't mention anything else. It simply says these 24 people are accused for um, uh, 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 reasons of an emergency, and they must be tried. That's it. That's it. Now, you know, no evidence is mentioned. Nothing is mentioned. So it's a, it's, a, it's a complete denial of a trial, as we understand it. And, and as, as the trial begins on the 5th of July, it's got one Indian judge and two English judges. Within two weeks, two of them are sacked. The Indian judge sees what's going on in the courtroom where the prisoners are being beaten up and so on. And he objects to that. When the government prosecutor goes around to his house and says, you mustn't object, you're a judge. He says, I'm a judge, not a butcher. And because he says that, he's sacked. The English judge is sacked because he actually encourages the beating of prisoners in jail. So within two weeks, two of the judges are sacked. That leaves only one judge who now is accompanied by two other judges appointed with him, who alone has heard all the evidence right the way through. The other two judges haven't. At the end of which, they give a judgment 
without calling all the evidence, no cross-examination is being allowed, it gave a judgment of death being announced on the 10th of October. Right? And, and now there was no right of appeal to, to the High Court. The only right of appeal you could have had was to the Privy Council. And that's where Pritt goes and argues. And he's treated in the most disparaging uh, and scandalous, dismissive way, where, you know, the five judges are aghast at, uh, as to why he should even venture to try and defend these people. And, and normally what happens in a trial, uh, as you will know, is that one side gets up and speaks, Pitt gets up and speaks. He says, this is the case, this is a privilege. They've not had a proper trial. And then the, 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 the judges say, now, Mr. Prosecutor, what do you say to that? In this case, Lord Dunedin, the judge, doesn't even call upon the government lawyer. Right? He simply says, no, nothing to answer for. One and a half page judgment, which I actually include in the book, uh, uh, to show how bad it is. And uh, uh, is is hanged after that. Now, this is a complete travesty of justice in every, every way. And the other travesty, of course, which is not also often mentioned, is Gandhi's role. Because, you see, Gandhi came from a totally different um, tradition. Gandhi believed in dominion status for India on par with what Canada got. These are the white dominion territories of Canada, New Zealand, Australia. They were given dominion status to be part of the empire. Bhagat Singh said, no, we don't want to be part of the empire. We want complete independence. And, and Gandhi was opposed to that. And Gandhi also described these uh, young revolutionaries, many of them students, as, as quote, unquote, deluded patriots. Uh, and so when the um, uh, 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 um, meetings were taking place with Lord Irvin about independence uh, and so on and so forth, he never insisted when other people expected him to, that there should be commutation to life imprisonment. People looked upon him to do that, and he wouldn't do that. So when actually on the 23rd of March he is hanged, on the 24th, uh, on a train from Calcutta to Karachi, where Subhash Chandra Bose, another leader of the Indian uh, uh, independence movement, is sitting with him, um, and, and the two of them arrive at Lahore, what happens is normally when dignitaries arrive, they're given a garland of flowers and so on. People give them a garland of black flowers, and they give them black shawls as a mark of disgrace that he had actually brought the independence movement to distribute. And so he's been blamed throughout for that. And it's something, again, that's not known at all, you know, because the tradition of these two movements is not known. And so we don't know in the public knowledge exactly how Gandhi uh, was treated as a result of that as well. I mean, personally, what you've just you've just told us, I, I just I can't get my head around the fact that he's he's got he's just got no rights to question what's being done to him at all. Yeah, that's right. completely emasculated the ability to mount a defence, which is just fundamental in law, isn't it? Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's a, it's a charade of of the law. It's it's like saying, well, look, we we really want to get rid of you because you're going to be trouble for us. So let's just put up some semblance of a trial. It is not really a trial at all, you know. I mean, as I say, when the case was in the magistrate's court for 10 months, there were going to be 400 witnesses, 230 had already been heard. It would not have taken that much long to have heard the other witnesses. Why on earth do you make an ordinance to extrapolate a running trial and put it before a tribunal? And one of the points I make actually is this, that if you want to look at how the war on terror is now being fought, the Guantanamo Bay trials and the like and so on, actually the blueprint for those trials is the Bhagat Singh trial. That's where the idea of special tribunals actually comes from. 
that you, you, you don't do it in, 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 in an open court. So what you do is you put it you know, somewhere on the shadows and, and some trial, which is not on mainland America, it's taking place in Guantanamo. And that's where these people are being tried and, and convicted. And, and so in all these terror trials, this is the, the blueprint that's being used. It's insanity, isn't it? Um, so they do execute him. How is it carried out and what happened? Well, again, I mean, there, there is a, 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 what happens is that normally people are executed at dawn. Mm. And, and, and uh, his mother, uh, his uh, father and brother were making their way to Lahore to go and see him. But what happens is that 7.30 p.m., it's decided the night before, 11 hours before, that they would secretly put him to death. And, and so the three of them, Raj Guru Sukhdev uh, and Bhagat Singh, walk to the gallows. And, and, and what they do is they, they take the rope themselves, they kiss it, and they themselves put it around their neck, and then they embrace each other, and then they go to death smilingly, um, inviting death in this way. And, and um, the rumor has it that their bodies are then taken down unhacked, uh, cut into pieces, and then are taken to the banks of River Ravi. And there they're hurriedly cremated in the dead of night around four o'clock in the morning. Um, and we know that because what happens is that at around three, four o'clock in the morning, when people at dawn are getting up in that part of the world, they see the smoke uh, taking place, uh, the burnings and the like and so on. And, and they, they come out and they go out and they retrieve the bones from the river which will be thrown in the room and so on. And they do a proper cremation. And that spot is actually marked to this day as a spot where they were actually then, then cremated. Um, and, and, you know, there's a tremendous uh, uh, turmoil in the country. The Tribune newspaper picks this up and it's a terrible, terrible, you know, uh, sense of loss and of being, having been robbed uh, in this way. And, and um, as, as I've said, you know, right way through up to that point, Bhagat Singh was more popular than Gandhi. Uh, you know, Bhagat Singh was the most popular Indian in India at that time. And it's only after his execution that with the revolutionary, the entire leadership having been, you know, effectively decapitated now as a result of that, that the Congress idea of working with the, 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 the rulers and working towards um, a, a kind of freedom uh, which we've got today happens. And, and what is that kind of freedom? I mean, this is the other thing that people need to uh, be thinking about. Bhagat Singh was fundamentally anti-communal and anti-caste. He wanted Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus to live together in one country. Mm-hmm. In fact, he writes a book, uh, sorry, an article shortly before he dies, called Why I Am an Atheist. And he says, I'm an atheist because religion has much to answer for because it only uh, tends to instill hatred uh, towards uh, other communities and the like and so on and so forth. On the contrary, what has happened with Gandhi is that communalism, that part, the Gandhi, uh, Nehru and present day Indian part, had led to communalism, had led to casteism, had led to Brahmanism, had led to uh, the lower orders being suppressed and the higher caste being privileged more and more and more. And, and one of the severest critics of this is this retired Supreme Court judge um, that I uh, talk about. Um, and he, he has said that, look, if we had only followed Bhagat Singh's path, we would have been like China, which has suppressed religion, which has bettered the lot of its population, which has become a modern industrialized society and is not caste-based, is not feudal society-based as we are. So there's much to 
to mourn over really here uh, because the whole purpose of getting independence was not really to become, you know, oppressed by another elitist caste. The whole purpose was, in fact, to get freedom for everyone. And, and that, the more we look at it, the more seems to be the case is not happening. So how did the media react at the time to the judgment and the sentence? Well, the, the, the media uh, published uh, uh, on a daily basis the proceedings uh, in uh, the tribunal, in the courts. They published the papers uh, uh, that Bhagat Singh had written in, in jail. And, and there was a complete uproar. But it was followed by uh, a lot of repression by the, by the government. Um, so um, it's a time when martial law was then, then declared. And uh, so it was not really possible to... to uh, to do more than that. Um, but there was a tremendous amount of disquiet in, in the media. Did his trial and execution cause any fundamental changes in India? No, it, it hasn't because uh, the uh, revolutionary socialist communist ideal has really been uh, suppressed. And uh, the Communist Party of India is now really uh, uh, a shell of its former past and uh, that particular tradition of um, uh, and this is this is what Bhagat Singh said when he was asked when he makes a speech he says by revolution I don't mean a violent revolution what I mean is a revolution of renewal a constant engagement a reawakening and a renewal of who we are as a people and that is something that really has not happened and, and so really um those people who, who uh, are his devotees and are following him are saying that really we've lost our way, that the whole purpose of independence was not to supplant one oppressive group with another, but really to, to uh, you know, uh, 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 provide freedom for the bulk of the people and, and not to have the degree of oppression that we've got, the malnutrition in India, the lack of uh, medical services, the lack of healthcare and so on, um, which, you, which you don't have to the same extent, of course, in China. And so in that sense, uh, the point that has been made is that really um, it didn't lead to the change that was, that was envisaged. Uh, and in fact, you know, one of the lawyers that represented him um, uh, was, uh, again, a distinguished uh, uh, Muslim uh, lawyer, uh, Ali and um, he writes only a year after independence. He said, he said, only a short while ago, Bhagat Singh was a household name. And now he has simply become a page in history. And he said that, and he writes in a newspaper in Pune about that. And he says that, look, you know, if we're not careful, these people will be consigned to oblivion. And, and, and this was really another reason for my writing the book in that, um, whereas, you know, I'd been brought up on stories of Bhagat Singh and what he did. You know, he was something who was completely, completely unknown in, in the West. And, and, uh, and I thought it's high time that really that particular tradition as uh, epitomized by him, a very learned man, extremely well-read a person who, and, you know, even after, even after the shooting of Saunders, one of his associates makes the point that for the next two days, he was really in the doldrums in deep thought and gloom because he had taken life. Um, and in fact, you know, that when they, when they do uh, kill him, they, um, publish uh, pamphlets, handwritten pamphlets, where they say, we have avenged the death of Lala Lajpat Rai, but we mourn the taking of a life because life is dear to us. So there's this constant reference to the fact that they, you know, have a higher ideal, that they're not just killing for the sake of killing. And, and, and as I say, this is something that's simply not been brought uh, out in any discussions of Bhagat Singh. There are no memorials, really. Um, 
to any great extent in India. But there is an awakening in Pakistan. So Pakistan celebrates Bhagat Singh Day on 23rd March in Lahore. Much to you know, my surprise, I discovered that really the local population keeps these traditions alive in both places. Uh, the songs are being sung uh, on a regular basis in Pakistan, um, on Bhagat Singh, as they are in, in, in India. What is his legacy? I think his, 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 his legacy is the, this thing that India Today magazine, which is a leading intellectual magazine, asked its readers a question, who is the greatest Indian? And back came the reply, not Gandhi or Bhagat Singh, uh, not, not Gandhi or Nehru, but Bhagat Singh. And I think his legacy is this, that this idea of aspiring to a higher ideal of how we should really live as a community, as a people. Uh, and I say this for this reason. Uh, for a long time, I've taken this view that all the big ideas that we are battling with in this country, equal opportunities, multiculturalism, uh, diversity, Black Lives Matter, uh, rights for women, uh, pluralism, all of those things have been practiced in India in a diverse community where religions were respected, where you had affirmative action for the downtrodden, for the untouchables, uh, equal opportunities. Everything was practiced there for the last uh, 60 years. Uh, and, and, and yet that is something that has now actually been uh, suppressed, um, uh, you know, as, as, as being an aberration that really this is not something that we ought to be doing. But uh, the legacy really is, is, is how should people live in a community together. And, and it is this that he speaks to, constantly referring to this idea that really um, a lot of his friends were Muslim friends, uh, things, and he was absolutely against this idea of communalism being used to undermine people. So if we, whether we look at Trump's America, uh, this country's Boris Johnson, or in fact, uh, uh, the current incumbent in India, the part that's currently being taken is a little different from the part that uh, that he would have pointed out. Satvinder, thank you so much for coming on to share the story of Bhagat Singh with us and to tell us all about the history of India following the First World War. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. I think as well that everybody knows who Gandhi is and perhaps not doesn't know how to put Gandhi in context with other Indians and other movements and things that were going on in India at the time. He's, he's not the be-all and end-all of efforts to gain independence is he so could you tell us again about your book and where people can get hold of it so they can find out more yes the the, the book uh, has been published uh, uh, on 15th november last year so two months ago it is available in waterstones and uh, blackwells on uh, ebay amazon you name it everywhere now in, in fact even discounted uh, so it's um, available pretty much everywhere and an indian edition is also in preparation and will be out in new delhi next month uh, available available there congratulations it is fantastic and thank you so much for joining us thank you it's been a pleasure Join us tomorrow when Jason Sandy and Nick Stevens will be with us to talk all about mudlarking on the River Thames. That is these incredibly cool people that get down and dirty in the Thames is uniquely preserving mud and dig out all kinds of historical artefacts. So don't miss out on that one.
Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe.